Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Brum Richards, who served with the majority of his military career in 148 McTeela Commando Forward Observation Battery Royal Artillery. Hopefully, I said that right whose naval gunfire role can be traced back to the Combined Operations Bombardment Units, or COBUS, that provided fire direction for ships in shore bombardment during World War II. One freight battery are specially qualified in calling artillery, naval gunfire control and airstrikes to support 3 Commando Brigade Royal Marines and UK Special Forces. They are experts in covert insertion, patrolling behind enemy lines, concealment, encrypted communications and battle damage assessment in all environments. Members of one freight battery took part in operations in the Malay Peninsula between 1963 and 66, Borneo over the same period and the Radfan in 1964 and they also took part in Aden at various times between 1960 and 1967. The unit was scheduled for disbandment when Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands in April 1982, but its performance during the war essentially stopped this disbandment in its tracks. Brom's experiences as a commando gunner were quite unique, encompassing the withdrawal from Empire in the 60s and closing with Operation Corporate, the name given for the operation to retake the Falkland Islands. This is the first of two podcasts, and this one will concentrate on Brom's career and the second on one freight battery operations in the Falklands. It's great to see you, Brom, and thanks for coming on the podcast. No worries, no worries. So, Brom, One Freight Battery is the only remaining specialised naval gunfire unit in the Army. Can you give us a brief overview of the evolution from the COBUs created in World War II to One Freight today? Yeah, well, it's a very complex uh, unit, but it's done the same job since 1940 until today. Basically, to get ashore, find, find the enemy's uh, 
positions, engage them with whatever, and then get out. That's basically what it was. It was formed in 1940, and at the end of the war, the five Cobu units, all with about 60, 70 blokes in them. RA officers went to commando training, and they were at Whale Island to be taught uh, how to fire the ship's guns. Nobody knew it at this time how to do it. The chief petty officer at Whale Island said, how are we going to do this? Well, there was one lad on, on the course of the 15 officers called Bill Knight, and he was in the Territorial Army and the Air Defence, and he said, hang on, in the Air Defence, the target moves and the guns stay still. I beg your pardon, the other way around. <laughs> Bill Knight said, that what we do is um, we do it that way. We, you know, the, the guns are still and the target's moving. So in your world, the ship's moving and the target's still. Just reverse it, they all went, marvellous. So then that's how they formed them. And then it, it went on like that, and it was a, a good unit. In '46, it became number two Cobu unit and number six Cobu in Southeast Asia. And they started changing the names. God knows why they kept changing the names. It was In 1947, it was called 333 Combined Operations Bombardment Battery. In 1948, 267 Combined Operations Bombardment Battery. 52, 266 Amphibious Observations Battery. In 1955, there's a massive reorganisation of the whole military equipment, clothing, you name it. So it became 95AO Regiment with 166AO Battery in, in uh, Hong Kong and, and three independent troops. Then in 1961, uh, it was 95AO Regiment with 20 Battery in Hong Kong and 148 Battery in Bovington. All doing the same job that it started with. In 62, 20 Battery became part of 29 Commander Light Regiment. And in 64, 148 Battery became part of uh, 95 Commander Light Regiment. Prior to Second World War, who directed Navy gunfire? Because ships pound, pounding the shore. Oh, well, not what, a new thing. what used to happen was the ships, I mean, in the First World War, there's no comms as such, you know, so there's no comms like now. Uh, and so a ship would be told to bombard ashore. It had either turn up a day late, a day early or whatever, bombard the wrong shore or not bother doing it. So you had things like the Dardanelles, which they were firing against the Turks, and it was a massacre. They are killing our own people. And there was no control whatsoever. So when Churchill was Prime Minister, he said, I need an airborne division, I need a commando, because he was in the Boer War, and the commandos, the yeah. Dutch were KOM, commando, and he said, I want commandos formed, and they did the first raid on Norway, which was a good success, blowing up all those uh, fuel tanks. And, and that's how the whole thing began. And I think you can see as well, Brom, the size of the Navy in World War Two, but the sheer size of those combined bombardment units and you can see as the navy's been shrinking the sort of the commitment to naval gunfires probably shrunk as well is that a fair assessment yeah, yeah. but the, the interesting thing is which a lot of people forget is that when they formed the fo parties they had an artillery officer because he was the only person who could direct gunfire because they were doing it in the first world war cable they'd run out with cable and talk to the guns and fire the guns no problem so they said i'll have these people doing it in this in the second war so they had an artillery officer but the, the Army's morse wasn't as good as the Navy's morse in those days because there was not much voice because 100 yards down there with the wind behind you was how the radios worked. So they, they, <laughs> they used to get a, three matlows, a telegraphist and uh, two, two signalers, who were one with flags and one with an oldest lamp. And these guys would go ashore. They weren't volunteers, just normal bog-standard matlows, signalers. They'd go ashore carrying garden sheds on the backs, communicate with the ship and engage targets. And then the officer said, well, I, actually, I need a, a bombardier act from your artillery with me. You know what? So they had a bombardier act form coming with them as well. And that's how the first parties were formed. Unbelievable, really. And you've still got a naval signaler presence yes, today, I yes, believe. Yes, yes, you've got the Navy there. The, the Navy's the backbone of it, really. 
as you will learn later on in the Falklands, the Navy controlled the battery, basically. Although it's part mm. of 2-9 now, the, the Navy's totally in charge of them. And if they want something done, they, the Navy tells them to do it, basically. And I think probably 2-9 and one freight's benefited from that, being on the sort of the Navy uh, financial side. I think if they'd been on the Army side, the finance wouldn't have been coming no, forward. Well, they were going to be disbanded, as we, as we said. Brom, you joined the Army in 1963. What made you join up, and why did you pick the Royal Artillery? Well, I didn't actually pick the artillery, it was picked for me. <laughs> I wanted, uh, I wanted, I'd always wanted to join up. My, my granddad was in the first war and told me lots of stories about it when my grand wasn't about. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I'd all, I wanted to join the Paras. I'd read, I'd read every book in the world about the Paras, the Commandos, and there was a couple of books on SAS. And so I said, right, I want to join up. But in 1960, some bugger in government said, no more conscription. So I'd, I'd missed by two years conscription. So I went to a recruiting office when I was old enough and said, I want to join the Paras. He said, all right, no problem. What's your second choice? I said, Paras. He said, no, no, you've got to choose for me. I said, well, I want to join the Paras. He said, well, okay, fancy the commandos. I said, yeah, okay, that. He said, what's your third choice? I said, Paras. And he looked at me like <laughs> I was some, I, I wanted to join the Paras. That's all I wanted to do. So I, I wanted to be an infantryman, but I didn't want to be an infantryman alone. I wanted to do something else, like, because I knew all about... Uh, gunfire control and all that I'd heard about it sort of thing so I thought that's what I want to do and that's what it happens what happened to me I was in the scouts and I was good at rock climbing and I saw I could read a map I could do Morse code I could carry a pack on my back I could live in the field all these things in the scouts I got my Queen Scouts badge, so I was feeling quite good about joining the forces so you went into the artillery yeah artillery and then you went through basic training. So how did you hear about 9-5 Amphibious Operations Regiment? Well, during basic training, I was told, you're going to go to Germany as a Tara. So I said, what's a Tara? He said, because you're going to college, I was going to college learning to become an, an, um, a, a structural engineer draftsman, I could use a slide drill. He said, you're going, to be, you're going to go in a gun position and use a slide drill, which they used in those days. And I said, I don't want to do that. So I said, oh, can I buy myself out, please? 20 quid it would cost to buy myself out. And this officer said, well, give it a couple of days and we'll think about it. Just as it happens, there was a guy from 7th Para wandering around on a like a fact-finding mission, I suppose, for the for us youngsters. And he was wearing his red berry, para wings, Pegasus badge. And I thought, bloody hell, mate. I went up to him and said, I want to, I want to get in the paras. I'll do, do it. He said, just, just ask him. Well, I asked him again and they said, well, we'll think about it. The two days later, would you believe, we were all mustered, 2-4 Irish battery and 5-9 Aston battery mustered in, in this big hangar. And this a presentation was put on by these people called 9-5 Amphibious Observation Regiment. I'd never heard of them. The first bloke walked out on the stage and he was got a black beard. He had a blackberry and a sparkers cap badge in it. And he, he had blue, a dark, was almost black battle dress he's wearing because we all wore battle dress in those days. Browsers brown. And uh, on his shoulder, he had Royal Navy Commando, para wings, and combined badges. Like, what the hell's that? And he said, "My name's R O Two Cauldron. I'm a signaller with the Royal Navy, and I go ashore and get comms with the ships." And the guys in the team engaged the targets and so on. And then the bombardier came out and did the same. Then the sergeant came out. Then this smooth, bloody captain, Captain Boggy Marsh, walks out and says, <laughs> Hello there, boys. Uh, how are you doing out there? He said, uh, My name's Captain Marsh and I'm a FO party leader. And uh, I, I take these guys ashore. We go ashore by submarine, parachute, boat, uh, uh, landing craft, taxi, bike, whatever method is possible. And I thought, that's what I want. <laughs> they then put us on a little, um, a little sort of initiation test and uh, that's what it all happened. That's the first I'd heard about him. You were 18 at this point, Brum, is that Just correct? Over I was, yeah, I was born Just... in 44, yeah. And was it quite unusual for guys to go direct from basic training into the unit? No, no, it was, it was, they, they could get what they wanted. Because National Service, 
a lot of the guys were national service in the in the battery or the nine five you know and it wasn't really mm-hmm. two years isn't long and you can't even learn the job in two years so there's a lot of them on national service there were some regulars you mentioned there about the pre-select the sort of the aptitude test what did that consist well of? it was a, a little quick a quick test that they they gave us there in Oswestry. you had a little interview with captain marsh I remember he was saying to me, oh, do you think you could walk, uh, parachute into the enemy territory and walk 90 miles with a pack of 90 pounds on your back and engage the target? I said, I don't bloody know, but I'll give it a good job. He said, that's <laughs> what I want to hear, man. <laughs> so that was it. Then we did a Morse aptitude test, but I could read Morse eight words a minute, so that was a piece of cake. We went for a run, which uh, was quite funny because the bombardier and sergeant took us and all these young kids you know, rushed off and charged in front of the the, the chap with the day glow shirt on and all that. But, but in the end, we then came to an assault course, which we'd never seen at Oswald. We never used it, you know, an assault course. Artillery assault courses. Come on, do me a favour. So we went to this assault course, and this sergeant says, right, the bombardier will now show you. And by the way, this sergeant and bombardier weren't even breathing heavy. And we were all going, <gasps> we'd just, we just done a couple of mile run. He said, the bombardier will now show you each obstacle how to get round it. So we went round it, and he said, right, go. So we all pranced off like a bunch of girls around this bloody... This is about 35 or some of us like that, ran this assault course. And when we all got back, he gave a stick. I'd never heard such language in my life. And he said, if there's a bloke in front of you, you drag him off and you get past, you know, that's what you got to do. So off we went again. We went round again, and I, I, was, I, was, I wasn't clever, a clever bloke, but I noticed that as soon as the last man came in, he just said, go again. I thought, hello, he's just going to keep doing this. And the, the last man dropped off. And gradually, there was five of us left. We must have gone around that bloody thing about ten times. There's five of us <laughs> left, and he said, OK, you guys can come to pool. I didn't know where pool was. I'd never heard of pool. He said, tell the, tell the officer we recommend you to come down to pool for selection. That was it. So it's basically just beasted you to sort of the last five you, or standing. You're standard. not kidding, yeah. And we, we got to pool. The four of us got to pool because one of them obviously changed his mind. Because some smart guy in the um, in, in training went up to the regimental office or something, and he looked up a, a book which tells you all about units. So I've just looked up yeah. 9-5, and they're divers, parachuting, submarines. I said, yeah, I'm in for that. <laughs> and that's that's what that's how it all started, yeah. So at the end of basic training, you, you were posted to 9-5 in order to carry out the selection process. Yeah. And part of this, I believe, was to pass both P Company and the commander course. Yes, yeah, yeah. So what was that like? Well, basically, we, we, we got to pool... And there's four of us from the artillery, and there's six matlows there. And there were some of the matlows used to put in for this sort of thing to get away from the ship they were on. But there was there was six, and they, the the bomb the bombardier in charge, the fittest bloke I've seen in my life, uh, our PTI. He picked two of the matlows to go with us after we did two weeks at pool. Uh, Monday to Saturday. We used to work, are you listening? We used to work Saturdays as well. <laughs> uh, stand down at one o'clock on a Saturday and we just ran and ran and ran, ran the beaches, carrying people on our backs, just all, all bloody day long. We we did all that. We then went to Limston uh, and Bickley with a sergeant, Royal Marines, who was, he didn't quite fit his uniform, he was a bit portly. And he said, right, I've got to get you blokes fit for joining the commando course. Two nine had just finished all the army all arms commander course. So we were going to do a Royal Marines one. They did six weeks at the end of their training. Then they went off to deal to do the marching in straight lines bit, um, that sort of thing. So we had a week with him. We had two blokes from 2-9. And this sergeant was out of his depth. We just ran him into the ground. <laughs> you see, he said, you blokes are fit enough to join my my corps type of thing. So we did that. Um, then we did the six-week six commando course. We were supposed to come back to Paul. Um, on the Friday night 
and have two weeks of pool before I enter P Company. But the clerk said to us, you're all going to P Company tomorrow. Jesus. So I went to P Company. Now, you, the question you asked, which I got I diverted from, the difference between the two courses was the Royal, the Royal Marine Commando course, I don't know, I never did an Army All-Arms Commando course, I don't know what the difference is, but the Royal Marines Commando course was a teaching programme because these are infantrymen <clears throat> and they're smart as carrots and they do a bloody good job and they, they really are well-planned and well-organised. So you, you, hardly anybody failed it, basically, because they'd been doing like 15 months or something. No, not 15. A, a long time. No, it's about 20, 20, it's yeah, 20 a, a long, weeks, I think. Yeah, it's all through basic training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, they, were, they were all, you know, the, the, the chaff had been weeded out, if you know what I mean. But P Company was just a selection beasting. And you arrived at P Company in those days, and you were up there for the two weeks, and you could be failed on the spot instantly. Um, and uh, it, it just happened quite a few times. Uh, a bloke running up towards me in the gym in the morning. This the sergeant, these PTI sergeants were absolute animals, and he just said, "Platform two, go." Which meant you'd failed. He said, "Bloke running towards you on a relay race, <laughs> failed on the spot." And I, because I didn't move fast enough, he screamed his head off at me, and they were absolutely, really, really beasting you. And I can tell you in a mm. bit. I know another question in a minute. I'll get around to that in a minute. Is this the differences, do you think, between the sort of the, the roles that, that influence the training? Is the impression I get, you know, the, the airborne role is fast, quick, highly aggressive. Uh, and I think that feeds into the selection course. Yeah, at the end of the day, the commandos and the paras, the objectives and the aims are the same. It's just where they get there. And I'll, I'll, mm. I'll draw a, a little picture here. You get a, a, a battalion of paras in the blues and the red berries on parade, and you get a commando together in their blues and on parade. What's the drill? The commando drill is smart, clean, efficient, and organised, and fairly, not slow, but you know what I mean? It sort of looks mm. smooth. The paras is all rah, 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 up and legs up and down, and that's what it is. The paras, in my opinion, and I'll, I'll fight anybody who says anything, uh, they, they charge at things, and the objective is to get people there, the Marines mm. is they plan and they get that squad there. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So mm. the Paris is whoever's there first starts fighting. <laughs> and the Marines, the <laughs> Marines is you all get together together to fight as a unit type of thing. That's in my summing up in basic, basic principles, basically. But they're the same. They're hard as bloody nails. And they'll all tell you it's the hardest course in the world. Um, it is when you're doing it. And did you turn up with your commando no, Mary on? No, 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 no. <laughs> Absolutely not. They would have fell off <laughs> on the spot. Was, did you tell them where you come from, or did yeah, you just no. make a lie? We, we, we had to do this. Uh, oh, it was awful. We had to march into this bloody big, you know, the um, the, uh, the wooden hut, the um, the Great Escape, the huts there, yeah. the wooden huts. There was wooden huts like that that made the barracks. And you marched down to this table, which was four blokes on this table, and we marched in. But we've been doing marine drill for the last bloody eight weeks, and I marched in and you know didn't bring my feet up, and this sergeant screamed his head off at me. Maybe go back to the door and march up properly and bang my foot in as I bring your knee up to your bloody head and <laughs> wang it in. Um, <laughs> but they said, where have you just come from? I said, pool. Because where we had. But we didn't, we didn't wear our battle dress with our artillery commando on it because we'd have been failed. So we wore our number two. So we, we were just changing equipment. So we had one battle dress and one number two dress as our equipment. Like the SLRs. Yeah. SLRs were coming in and uh, 303s were going out and... 58 women coming in, 44 women, all that sort of stuff. 
So um, the, the, we had a Matler with us, and he got a right bollock. In fact, the way he marched in, like he was on a jaunty, on a bit of ship rolling. <laughs> uh, it was good, but no, you, you would never, never do that because, well, on the commando course, actually, when we passed the course, there was a, the Greenberry Parade, and uh, we we didn't put our green berries on because we didn't wear them in nine five A regiment until you were with the Paris or the Marines, uh, as right. you see later on. Um, and this sergeant said, why aren't you wearing the green berries? Well, we don't wear the green berry. Why are you on my bloody course then? <laughs> they couldn't understand it. So we said, well, when we <laughs> serve with you, we wear your hat. And when we don't, we wear our black hat. <laughs> ah, right, got right. So, oh, okay. It only lasted about a year, that. Then 2-9 took over and you all had to wear the green hat. Got you, got you. So if you were attached then to a parachute yeah. brigade... You'd wear the maroon berry. Yeah, if it's the thing I sent you, I've got pictures of me in, in the Paris yeah. with the red berries on. And yeah, then, and then you, when the blokes came out from Hong Kong to take over from us, they had a green hat and had to put the red hats on. And then back to Hong yeah, Kong yeah. with the green hats on. So you had a little little bag of hats, you know, like... An... <laughs> Maybe the wrong choice of uh, word. Oh, yeah, sorry. Well, of... <laughs> I know, I always get told off the same hats. I get really told... When I used to do presentations at the battery, I used to call them hats, and he said, you can't say that now. <laughs> <laughs> That's an airborne thing, I well, think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for your role then, what other training did you have to carry out? Well, you, you had to do the NGA course, which was a 14-week course. And the hardest bit of it for some people was the Morse. You did Morse every morning for an hour because it's a language Morse. And if you haven't got an mm. aptitude, you, you're not going to pass. So if a guy can't pass his Morse, he's, he's, he's discharged sort of thing. At the battery. And just for listeners are not familiar with the terminology, Brom, NGA is Naval Gunfire. Yeah, naval Gunfire, yeah, Naval, yeah. naval yeah. Gunfire Assistant. So you, to join a team of five, you have to do this course. But you have to learn the procedures for the Army, which is Army voice procedures, ar- artillery fire orders, uh, map reading, battery charging, antenna calculations and so on. For the Navy, you have to learn both voice and Morse fire orders, normal voice procedure, normal procedures for Morse and the fire order, Q and Z codes, brevity codes, NATO codes. And for the RAF, you have to learn all the RAF's way of talking. So you have to learn, if you mm. pick up a handset, you go, what, 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 who am I talking to? You know, and, and an OP in a gun battery just has one, one method of talking, basically. So we have to learn all these different, mm. different methods. Uh, the only Q code I can remember from back in the day, Brom, is I remember Q, uh, QRM was, uh, we used to remember it's Queer Royal Marine yeah. I'm being interfered That's with. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to learn about roughly about maybe a hundred of them so you could operate, you know, without any pro- problem at all. But we operate in uh, minimum 12 words a minute. And the Navy, when, when, you, when you send to the Navy, whatever speed you send in, they answer in. So if you're a smart aleck and you think you're fast at Morse, they'll flash it back to you at that speed. And if you've got to read it, you know, you're a right, you're a right bugger. See, what, I, what, I can't remember any Morse. Oh, no, I was useless. Because we had to do Morse as well, Brum. It's the easiest thing. Oh, a dit and a dal, what the hell? It's only two letters. The alphabet, <laughs> no. the alphabet's 26 letters. You remember them, can't you? No. I remember spending hours and hours and hours doing Morse. And we used to have quite a few one for eight lads come on board, and they were like demons on them on a Morse key, weren't they? But you always well, have to. Tomo. Oh, yeah, Tomo. Yeah, well, he was a metaler, ex metaler. Yeah, yeah, and he was a uh, he was BSM. Yeah. At the time, he was TSM on my course. He was teaching us Morse, and obviously, he was beasting us Morse with interference. He used to do. Yeah. Tears. It's a good good method of communication. It works. It really does work. 
And it's just it's sad it's gone now. I mean, the Navy don't really do it now because all SATCOM, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's very very easily DF, though, isn't it? You have to be oh, slick. Oh, crikey, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What other courses did you have to do? But that was at the NGA course to encompass everything that you needed to do for the for the job. So did so you do like insertion techniques and all that oh, yeah, sort we did of thing as well, like that, yeah. Boats, permission yeah. boats, and a uh, lot of lot of um, yomping, a lot of carrying stuff on your back. I use the word yomping rather than tabbing, but you have to get your language right when you're talking to the right people. <laughs> so when you go and you go up to older shot, it's tab. When you go to the Marines, it's yomp. <laughs> <laughs> And so at the end of that 14 weeks then, you were basically able to join a patrol uh, as a useful yeah. member. Is that yeah. correct? Well, it, you, you're basic, basic level. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to, it takes you another 18 months, two years uh, to learn your trade and to, you know, become efficient at it because you're a greenhorn, aren't you? 1964, your first posting was on attachment to two power in Bahrain. Yeah. Can you describe what the operations are like in that theatre? Well, Bahrain... And, and why was two para posted there? Or well, in in the in 62, the uh, Q8 thing went, went wrong. And uh, there's a lieutenant called Saddam Hussein in that in that uh, thing. And, uh, <laughs> that rings a bell. They invaded Q8. So they, the paras were posted and, and placed um, in in Bahrain as a, as a stop block, as it were, to protect the oil refineries in Bahrain. There's no oil fields in Bahrain. Um, so to protect the oil refineries out there. And it was a battalion group. So it had uh, 7th RHA, one battery of 7th RHA, paramedics, signals, engineers, heavy drop, ordnance, all that, the whole battalion group. And it had one NGS team because it's near, Bahrain's near the water. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's handy to have a ship around sort of thing. So we, we, the exercises were hard and many. And the daily routine was non-stop. You didn't have blokes laying around in the bunks. It was something happening all the time. Even if it was set up a booming command post and go, on, go and do a patrol for 500 yards into the desert you know, and then come back and all, just constant, constant training, non-stop. We used to use Yaz Island, which is now a Formula One racing circuit, <laughs> um, <laughs> as, our, as our training exercise area, basically. Because Bahrain was didn't want to be messed up. The Sheikh who owned it didn't want his island messed up too much. So we were based down by the south part of the island between the oil workers and the population. And somebody once remarked, if the Persian Gulf is the A-hole of the world, then Bahrain's 400 miles up it. <laughs> so uh, How times change. It was, I've got lots of funny dits. You've got time for a dit? Cause you, on, then, yeah. We were going to Yaz for an exercise once, and um, we went down to the area where the landing craft were loading us up because even in those days the marines weren't used to using anybody but marines and the army weren't used to going on board landing craft especially south of the para they go what's these things up and down you know we we normally fly out in heavy drop or whatever so we were there for i don't know what we were doing there but we were watching these guns arrive the 105 pack howitzers with the uh, six of them towed by towed by Land Rovers, long wheelbase Land Rovers, and they got up to the landing craft. And this colour sergeant of the landing craft said, "Right, where's where's your front towing hooks?" Paris said, "What are you on about front towing hooks? What, what are you on them for?" He says, "You've got to put your land your vehicles, the, those gun things, on the landing craft." And they said, "Well, we reverse them on you." And said, "Don't be daft. You can't reverse onto a landing craft." And this sergeant major come up. So what's the problem going on here then? And this colour sergeant said, "Oh yes, sir, Sergeant Major. Um, we, 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 yeah, you're blowing to get these guns on here." He said, you, "Where'd you want them?" 
He said, we want three there, three there. He said, right, lads, boom. And these blokes jumped in the Land Rovers and reversed straight in these guns up and down the ramp, you know, bang, bang, bang. And the colour sergeant was amazed. I'll never forget his face. And he said to this sergeant major, I've never seen such a, such a professional driving demonstration there. And he said, well, laddie, next time we do it, you'll see it again. Now, don't anybody, <laughs> anybody touch them guns. They're in our colours. Got it? And off he walked. And these, these, these Marines were going, bloody, how did they manage that? I mean, in those days, the drivers, the gun drivers are phenomenal. I don't know what yeah. experience you've got over that, but they were. I, can, mate, I can't even reverse a bloody trailer and oh, mind a gun. These blokes been whoosh, <laughs> just one move. Nobody did a shuffle. All of them went straight back in. So anyway, um, my boss... Well, has got a caravan. I don't know how he reverses that either. <laughs> no, I, I, I get the missus to push it. <laughs> the other thing was uh, my boss found out that I'd done a lot of rock climbing in Civil Street, and he said to me, would you like to join Two Paris Climbing Team? I said, I'm bloody Bahrain. What are you on? He said, no, they're going to Kenya um, to do climbing. I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I joined the climbing team because I, I was able to do... Uh, rock climbing at quite a high level uh, hard VS climbs I was doing and then when we finished Kenya Tupara went back to England so the guys I was with all went back and I was left in Nairobi in theory I was going to be left in Nairobi uh, for a couple of days so I got a flight back to um, back to Aden and back to back to Bahrain so uh, I, I was in on my own in this hut with a Royal Corps Transport uh, driver who was looking after me type of thing and he said you've got to go over the Scott Scars were there, uh, there at the time on the last Mau Mau patrols they were doing. And he called me over to the regimental office. He said, uh, read this signal. And it said, Gunner Richards, report to Aiden immediately. Repeat immediately. I said, what's this about? He said, haven't you heard? I said, been up a mountain, mate. What's that? He said, oh, there's an SAS patrol gone up the hills to um, find a drop zone for, for three para. And the two, two of the nine-man team, Captain Edwards and Trooper Warburton, were both killed and had their heads cut off and paraded on the Yemen border. And what? So I had to get myself to Aden as fast as possible. They, they got me a flight the next day. And when I got there, the bloke said, they just left this morning. So you, you can go up tomorrow morning with another two Land Rovers going up there. So um, I, I just went up there and, and uh, just got to the front lines, as it were, because the, the FO team were doing airstrikes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Farrah Hockley was in charge of three para. You may have heard of Farrah the para. He, he got Captain Riddell, who was an ex-Army Air Corps Oster pilot, Air OP. And he was brilliant. So he was doing all the forward air controlling. And that, that's what happened. And we had uh, we had the 7th para, J Shidiru G battery from 3RHA, mortars, GPMGs, and 
the the uh, FAC. So in a way, we were probably some of the first JTACs, I suppose you could say, because we we're com- combining yeah. all the all the support. Farrakhan saw the need for somebody to bring all the support down rather than, you know, this bloke did this, this bloke did that and whatever. You sent us an interesting photograph of you sat on a hill or a mountaintop in eight, oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's a, there's a fast fast air going in. Were they hunters? Yeah, hunter they? aircraft, yeah. I mean, How good were they? Um, well, it was as good as the FAC, and Captain Riddell was brilliant because he was an ex-pilot, and he knew some of these guys from when he was at Middle Wallop. Um, mm. And he said, he said we used to have competitions where to see who could fly the lowest. He said the hunters always win because they could pull un- undercarriage up. The Oster couldn't pull his pull his undercarriage up. So that's that's what they, you know that was. Well, I should stand behind him. Comaxo was seven minutes away, and when we called for a fast air, we come up on the on the radio. Bassoon, bassoon. This is Fortune Eight mission, and they'd send it get a fast jet to come up to us. Two, in fact, and it would take seven minutes. But Captain Riddell used to sit. In, in the OP, looking at the target, never look behind him like some FACs do. Look at the target because you could visualise what the pilot was seeing. And I should yeah. stand or kneel behind him and I'd put my left hand on his left shoulder or his head or his right shoulder where, where direction the aircraft was coming from. So we send the aircraft to an IP, an intersection point. He'd say, report to IP Charlie 3, three and give me a call. 3,000 feet, so he go to there, he'd give him all the briefing, tell him the speed, direction, everything else. And he'd say, leaving IP now, and we'd mark the time. And I'd just say, you know, he said, he's to your left, he's to your left, he's behind you. And he'd, poof, he'd just talk the aircraft straight in. Because he knew what the pilot was seeing all the way through. I've seen him take a man out at the bottom of a tree, literally one man firing at us, which is from that position you saw. And he just poof, took him out with the rockets. Anyway... <clears throat> I mean, you, you you described that very well, Bromie, but I think until you've controlled fast air, oh, yeah. you've got to be so f- quick on your feet, quick thinking, yeah. and that visualisation you're talking about where you're trying to communicate to the pilot certain points on the ground, yeah. it's, it's not a skill everybody can do. Yeah, well, some, some FACs will look up at the aircraft and then they've got to look back to find the target again. They're losing seconds. Or milliseconds, yeah. you know. And the aircraft's travelled about three miles at that yeah. point, or 10Ks yeah. or something. Well, the, the hunters would come in pairs. The first one would rocket, sorry, would cannon cannon the target. And if there's any adjustments, Captain Rizal would give them an adjustment. Well, the second one's coming in with rockets. So the first one would just fire a burst of cannon. And imagine how quick behind the second one is. And then he'd mm. give a quick direction, and then poof, rockets would go in. And off they go, and they'd go, uh, come back again for another one. Um, we we got a lot of work up there. W- one day we had uh, a thing, we had 40 Arabs against us, and the Paras were in a bit of trouble, and we had what we call seven Lulus. A Lulu is when two aircraft circle until they're running short of fuel and they, they get replaced. So that, was, mm-hmm. that okay. took that took yeah. seven times in the day. So we had air cover for the whole of the day, basically, and these aircraft were just looking for targets. And as the Paras were in trouble, we were just bringing them down and, having a right go at it. But funnily enough, we never found any bodies, just bits of bodies and blood trails. I don't know what they do with them. Oh, that's a common thing in insurgency, though, mm. isn't it, taking away their dead? Oh, yeah. Funny enough, yeah. we had uh, John Tullock, a Vietnam FO with the New Zealand Army, was on a couple of weeks ago talking to us, and he said the same thing. They uh, they uh, brought down artillery fire in about 30 or 40 NVA, uh, and they went to do the assessment, and there was just blood trails. Yeah. There was nothing yeah. left behind. There was all bits of blood everywhere, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. How long were you out there for doing those operations in Aden, Brom? Well, the, the, the Radfan didn't last that long, actually, because uh, we, we did very well. And that's about three weeks, I think it was. If you look up Radfan in Wikipedia and whatever, the, the Brits were out there for ages, but they, they were getting 
the hats, oops, the um, the non non paras were um, <laughs> were getting beaten up on the roads to Dala. They wouldn't go up in the hills. So Farah Hockley was told go out to when these two SES blokes were killed, go out there, do some training, and go and sort it out. And he said, I'm not doing any training. We just went straight in. Typical paras. Charged in and frightened the life out of the Arabs for about 10 minutes. And then the Arabs got angry and started fighting back. So that, that's how it all sort of happened. And it was, it was a well, well-executed operation. We had ex, ex-company of 4-5 commander with us as well, which is strange because there's a, a commander attached to you. So after six months in Bahrain, you were posted to Hong Kong. I've noticed a thread here, mate. You're getting some really good postings at the time. So, so after six months in Bahrain, you're posted to Hong Kong, but you got held up in Singapore. Yeah. So what was happening at well, that we, point? We flew out Bahrain to Aden, Aden to Singapore, and it was I couldn't believe it. Everything was green because I'd been just spent the last seven months in brown. And everything was green, and um, we, we got stuck in. We went to Nisun Camp, and our boss got a trip. We should try and do trips uh, on board ship if we could, just to be with the navy all the time. So we got H. MS Kent, who was the latest, the first county class destroyer. So he said, we're going up to Hong Kong on the Kent. Great. So there was a team in, in Singapore, said hello to them, had a few wets, and then off we went up to, uh, went up to Hong Kong. We were all watching a film on the flight deck, and suddenly you heard the tannoy. Do you hear there? Captain speaking. We just had news from the war office that the Indonesian paratroopers have landed on the west coast of Malaya in the Malacca Straits. And as we're the aircraft picket ship in the area, we are going around there to see what's going on. You're now to consider yourselves in, in active service. And the action station alarms went off. And we're all going, yeah, we'll wind up, wind up like you do. Blaming the projectionists for ruining the film. I never saw that Doris Day bloody uh, Rock Hudson film to the end. So we had to go around to the west coast of Malaya to try and find these um, these Indians. But we, our boss said, we've got to get to Singapore. We can't stay on this ship. So Tug Typhoon was out there. We jumped on her. She was towing the splash target for a few days. Um, luckily, we never got hit by the ship. <laughs> then we got we got back to three to um, Singapore. Three commander brigade en masse had gone on board bulwark with the NGS team in Singapore. So we were doing um, patrols with the police, uh, riot patrols, because it was twelve hour curfews. And I kid you not, and I'm this is no exaggeration. I was I was with the police quite a few times. They had these bloody great shotguns, and they would the Chinese police would shout, would go bang bang stop. <laughs> and I thought this is not right. <laughs> Any got it round the wrong anybody way. Anybody that moved, they just bloody shot them. And then all, all of a sudden, one one night, twenty two air defence appeared from Germany on the parade square, and they'd come to put all the air defence bofers around Changi Airport and whatever. The whole whole regiment came from Germany. I thought this is getting serious now. But after it was all over, the, the, when they all, all the commander brigade came back, we then jumped on HMS Berwick and went off to Hong Kong. Eventually, Singapore was all right. No, you've got some good. You had some good postings yeah, there, mate. Seven years of them. <laughs> you got to uh, Hong Kong in 1966. Well, 60, then, 65, actually. 65. Then you were posted to Borneo. Yeah. Well, I did. Is that th- the end of part of the operation? Yeah, yeah. I was. I was twice sent to Borneo. First time with 40 commando. We 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 had to go to Malaya to do parachuting because when the Ch- Changi was a parachute school in Malaya, uh, in Singapore rather, and when there was a jumps course on. We used to go down there and join in with them to get jumps in. So we spend a week mm. down there just getting the jumps in. So we're doing that, and there's, we jumped on um, Quantan Air Base on the east coast of Malaya, and there's 12 of us hospitalised because there's a big wind gust come up, and we all landed on the runway riding the grass. And, you know, when you're not expecting grass, you, you, you go, 
Bloody hell. So we, we were hospitalised, but four of us are kept in, Geordie and me from 20 Battery, and uh, we spent a, spent a bit of time in there. But Geordie's smooth-talking git he was, he got us moved up to Hong Kong on an on a Argosy, which was good fun. So we went up to Argus up there, and I got up to uh, Hong Kong, and I was discharged from the hospital and given a week's sick leave. And I, the BSM got hold of me and said, right, you're going to Borneo. I said, sir, I'm on sick leave. He said, you can take your sick leave on the flight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I flew down. He's a good BSM. I like him. Oh, he's Alan, Alan Doria. <laughs> so he, um, I flew down to Singapore, met by the team down there. Next day, I flew out to um, Tuau, the west coast of Borneo. When the plane landed, I'm a gunner, don't forget, a young gunner on my own. I landed and um, all the people got transport. And I went up to this uh, movements corporal said, excuse me, but uh, where's my transport? He said, who are you? And he'd never seen a green hat and combined with spudge and wings, that type of thing, looking at me going, what's this bloke wearing, all this funny stuff? And I said, well, I'm supposed to be going to Tuau. He said, oh, that's the other side of the bloody Borneo, mate. The next flight is next this time next week. <laughs> and I, I said, because I'm a, I'm a politician, really, I said, what bloody idiot organises a flight <laughs> which picks up, you know, miss it? Uh, so he's, he said, right, go and see the squadron commander tomorrow uh, tomorrow morning, uh, half past seven at his office, told me to go. So I went into this uh, office, to this office. I don't know what happened to me. I don't know why I did it. He said, who are you? What do you want? I said, I've been told to report to you, sir, because I need to get to, um, get out to Tawau. And he said, just a minute, he suddenly sorting his desk out. He sandwiches his bottle of gin and all that, you know. And I looked on the wall and there was a bloody big map of Borneo and I could see, oh, that's where Tawau is. <laughs> that's where bloody Lab One is, where it landed. And uh, he said, right, what can I do for you? And I, I kid you not, I don't know what I switched. I said, well, sir, as you probably well know, the operations are now heightening up. And uh, I, I can't tell you exactly what's going on, but I've got details here, which I must get out to Tawau to, um, to as soon as possible. But the commandos are going to... And he's going, what? And he, he couldn't believe what I was saying. I couldn't believe it. And so <laughs> after a lot of bulk, bulk stuff, um, he said, right, we'll get you a flight. He got me a flight by a Civi aircraft two hours later. So I flew around to the east coast of Borneo and met up with the FO party. And Captain Riddell said, right, Richard, where the bloody hell have you been? <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, I'd done, <laughs> I've done my initiative. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was good. Um, so we had that. And then for the next time, which is out of, this is a bit out of phase, I went out there with the Royal Hampshire's, which is a bit different. The only different thing was there was when the, one of the signalers managed to um, somehow get communications on his old 62 set from headquarters that England had won the World Cup, and I didn't know what that was, 66. He said, uh, and they're all running around. I said, what's, what's the matter? I, I'm not a football fan, and they had won the World Cup. So that's what I heard about the World Cup being. So how long did you spend in the jungles on that trip then? Well, you're in and out of the jungle all the time. And the first one with the Marines, I was, I was the assault boat driver. So we do river patrols, which are quite scary. We go across to the other island and uh, check this gun position at a 25-pounder, which was the locals had it, and they didn't trust them because they always looked at you funny when you walked into the camp. And we'd do these jungle the patrols. We'd do patrols for the help, help the Gurkhas. We'd have uh, Canberra bombers coming in supporting them, uh, which wasn't that efficient because they get lost in the jungle. The maps they had were just green because all, all the maps in the jungle then were just taken from the air. And if you, oh, I see no contours no, or anything. No. And the, the <laughs> rivers were, were, sometimes you see a river in there, but one river looks like the next river, doesn't it? Yeah. So, um, so we had a few funny incidents there. 
But we had one thing, uh, which I'm, I'm allowed to talk about now. We were given a deniable mission. SBS, who were down by the beach, and um, Paddy Ashdown was a lieutenant there. Oh, Paddy Ashdown, right. yeah, I knew him quite well. Yeah, the old politician. Yeah. Did, you, did you know him at the time? Yeah, did yeah, you? yeah. Because uh, he was from Poole. And they're all from Poole, see. So we, I was, did my year at Poole. Anyway, so we were given this mission. There was a patrol boat coming down from the Indonesi- Indonesian side, go around this little island and just annoy everybody. And somebody at the top said, we must do something about this. Come up with a plan. So the plan was, we had a ship, HMS Cavendish, a Canberra bomber on standby, which wouldn't, would take a long time to get there. The 25-pounder on the other island. And uh, when this patrol boat came down, we would fire, hopefully, the ship behind it, which would make it come further into our territory, and SBS would remove all the occupants from the boat. The boat would be sunk and nobody would know where it had gone. That's what was supposed to happen. So three days later, we were called out called back because the boat didn't turn up so about four days five days later we went across to the gun position and i'll tell you those blokes were looking at us and i'm sure that they knew and they probably said to the boat don't come around this time so we all had yeah. we had loaded well, our loaded bloody guns and i thought i wonder if we just shoot one or two of them what would happen but they that's what it was so you did you did some hairy things did you not get bit by a sea snake I oh yeah 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 you? So, 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 uh, i was quite not laughing I'm, but i just I'm, thinking I'm, I just, uh, the way you shrugged it off made me laugh i'm glad you brought that up yeah it's a highlight of my career that <laughs> <laughs> That was on the second trip out there. We, because it was all winding down, we were sent up to the northeast tip of Borneo to stop the gun runners going in these big fast canoe things with cigarettes and drugs to Philippines. Because it's from the northeast tip of Borneo, straight across the seas of the Philippines. So we were going up there on this little island. We're supposed to be hidden in this island, which we were. But I had to go and blow an air, an air and a helicopter landing zone so we could have a chopper available to us. So we blew the helicopter landing zone. And we were coming back from it. Uh, I was the assault boat driver and uh, I was pushing the boat back in. Didn't want the other guys to get their feet wet. You know, I'm a nice bloke, really. And they were sat in there and um, I was pushing and I felt this bloody thing on my left foot and it really hurt and uh, we, we, we got got ashore and uh, put the bo- hid the boat up and Barry Viles our bombardier so what's the matter with you I said I think somebody's bitten me she said come on you wuss let's have a look and in my left foot there's two little holes between if you look, hold your hand, hand in front of you between the small little finger and the next one in between there there's a two two little holes and he said ah oh, here's a couple of acroflavin that'll be like the paracetamol That'd be all right. Well, I couldn't move my bloody leg in the night. A bit like uh, Captain Oates, I dragged myself away to a tree <laughs> to die. And the next morning, our boss said, what's the matter with you? I said, and he looked at my leg. It was bloody huge and it was red hot and it was swollen. To, to better get you back to um, 80 miles back to camp. So we jumped in, we got in the boat, uh, and then we got on the Land Rover. I had my leg hanging out the Land Rover, got back to the uh, hospital. And uh, the doctor said, oh, um, you've been bitten by a snake, mate. I said, how do you know? She said, well, there's two bloody holes in your foot. Snakes have got two teeth. <laughs> so they put me in this little room which had some other guys. One bloke who'd been sh- shot um, on patrol. A bloke had let, let his armour like, go off as he's handed over to him and he hit him in the back. Another chef had put some stuff on the number one cooker burner, which he thought was petrol, it was aviation fuel. It had blown up and burnt out of his face. Another bloke had broken something. Another bloke had had uh, verrucas removed, but the medic got it wrong and he put phosphorus phosphorus stuff on him and didn't take the bandages off and burnt his feet away. And me, me with this, we were in the only air-conditioned room. This doctor took me down to his little operating throat. He said, right, sit down there, put your feet on the the table. He said, you're a roughy-toughy commando, aren't you? I said, no. He said, I won't won't give you any (laughs) injection. So he just got a scalpel and cut the top of my foot. And this stuff... 
pulled out green, red, blue, you name it. He said, you're lucky there. I said, thanks, mate. He said, because if I'd hit a vein or something, you'd probably be caught ill now or perhaps in a box. Brilliant. Thanks for bringing so- that up. <laughs> <laughs> now I remember talking, uh, reading your bio, the, the, the stuff you sent me, Brom. It always yeah. made me think that must have been sore. So, Brom, you returned to the UK and Paul after seven years abroad, uh, which would be your base prior to Op Corporate, which was the op name given to the Falklands War. Can you give us a brief overview of your career prior to the deployment to the Falklands? Oh, crikey. So uh, we, we came back to Paul, spent 11 years in Paul, and I was a sergeant then. So we 20 battery, 148 battery amalgamated and became 95 commando FOU. So we were independent again, which was, in my opinion, the best thing for us. We were at pool and we're doing our own job. We worked for the Major General Royal Marines. We supported the Paras, the Marines, the SAS, SBS, and whoever else wanted to be supported. We supported the AMFL as well. And we did, we had troops in two teams in Malta and one team in Singapore. There's 86 of us all in 95FOU, and there's the other guy of 20 Battery, the sergeant, and I was called into the office by the, the boss and said, we, we can't have two sergeants, because in those days you didn't only had one sergeant, signal sergeant. He said, one of you's going to have to go. So we've both done the RSI's course. We've both got B grades, recommended to go back again. And I was just about to say, no way, and Wally Dool said, I'll go. So he, we talked that. He said, well, I'm not going to get on here, because there's two of us competing for the same job all the time. If I go to Lark Hill for three years, two and a half years, I can pick where I go. So basically this guy, just for the listeners may not be familiar, Brom, this guy's basically going to be an instructor yeah. at a, a, a non-deployable unit. Yeah, so that was that. I ran an NGA course straight away. The new boss was um, Major Preview, who became CO of 2-9 later on. And we were waiting for Colonel Stewart to, to arrive to become the CO of 95FOU. So I ran this uh, NGA course and I then... I, I've been doing abseiling with the battery for some time, helicopters and all that, but I kept saying to the to the bosses, I haven't got any qualification legally to do this. Nobody has. So they they ran a, they got an uh, abseil course run for me, and they had me on it, PJI from Poole with SBS, the PGI from Hereford with the SAS, and the two DZSOs from Hereford and Poole to do this abseiling uh, instructor's course. And I managed to pass that because <laughs> I could do it quite well. In 72, we had five teams enter the DW canoe race. We've been entering that for the last six or seven years. And one of the teams came third, which was fantastic. What was, it, what was DW stand for? Devizes Westminster Canoe Race. It's against, oh, right, okay, against yeah. the currents and it's, it's mm-hmm. a prestigious race. It, it, teams from all over come and do it. But the battery, or FOU, had uh, were third place in it. We had, we had a commitment to send teams to Salala and Belize. Then we had a new CO come, Lieutenant Colonel Redford. But we were just exercising all the time. Portland, which is just down the road from Poole, is the naval training place where ships would go for a 14-week workup when they were commissioned, or they'd come in from foreign countries and they would um, use all the facilities and do live firing. So we Mm -hmm. we were doing communications exercises, control exercises and live firing exercises every single week with Portland. So we always had a team, basically... Um, detached to Portland base almost. Just a quick one, Brum. So obviously we're going to cover the Falklands War and one for its part in that uh, on the next podcast. But leading up to the Falklands, it came out afterwards that one for battery is probably going to be disbanded. Yeah. Do you know about that no. prior to deployment, that this was in the air? The BC never told us. He knew. He knew, but he never told us. It's unbelievable. Uh, I won't go into that. We, so we had, uh, we had teams in Salala and Belize as well. The new CEO, Colonel Redford, took over. 
and he was quite good. Um, he sent me on an FOO's course, and I believe I was the first non-commissioned guy to do an, an artillery FOO's course because the, the right. course instructor was an American ranger, major, because he had an artillery guy who was over in America doing the, the exchange. So mm -hmm. he, he got hold of me one day and said, uh, well, quite soon after, he said, um, what are you doing on this course? You're a staff sergeant. I said, I know. He said, but why? Why He couldn't understand why. I said, I don't know. My boss sent me. He said, well, who are you? What do you do? I said, well, I'm from 9-5 Commander FAU. He said, well, what are they? And because he's a ranger, and I'd worked with the rangers before, I said, Anglico? You know, that's the Marines, yeah. Air Naval Gunfire. He went, oh, right, I know, right, great. And we were just pals from then on. But he took me to one side, and I, I don't know if I'm going to be controversial saying this. He said, I've been told by the SIG of Larkhill that you have to pass this course or fail. The officers attend it. Moving on. <laughs> well, I don't think yeah, it's a bit controversial. I think we, we talked about in other podcasts how, uh, how 473 started in the OP troops and other bits. Yeah. And the artillery were probably our best and worst enemies yeah, yeah. throughout. And how other units saw the utility more and used it. And only the gunners would use it if it made them look good. But there was definitely... Um, I think more the more specialists you are in the gunners, the the less you're popular. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've got. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I got a, a, a British IG was doing some missions, and I was always given the last mission of the day because I, I was a staff sergeant. You know, why should he have? Them? And all the officers were in a four-ton outside with glasses of wine on the back drinking and all that, and they'd call them in and they'd, yeah, hey, why have you done? Oh, yeah. But this one guy come up to me, a captain, and I don't know if you've ever met or seen photographs of William McCracken. He looked just oh, like him. Oh, legend, mate, William McCracken. He had a big moustache, scruffy hair, and his clothes never fit him. I mean, and he, he said to me, Staff, uh, do you mind if I join you and become your act? I said, you are, I'm your act. He said, no, I've been watching you. I'd like to be your act. I said, OK, mate, no worries. Because I'd been up like with courses all the time, taking them up. I, I, was William McCracken in 148 at this point? Or was this no, no, that, that, was, that was later on. Just before we finish off and go into Desert Island Ditsbrom, and just to sort of set the conditions for the next podcast, by the time the Falklands was rearing its head, you were the Battery Sergeant Major of 148 Battery, yeah, is that yeah. correct? I've been seven years as the Battery Sergeant Major, yeah, which was my downfall. Oh, okay. My downfall, really. Seven years? Yeah. How, I, how did you manage that? I just kept saying, I don't want to move on. I don't want to become a... I, I said to him, present company accepted, I said, I don't want to become an RSM with a stick and sat in behind a desk and just come to the COs. But I don't want to be like I am. I was an FOO, yeah. an NGFO, an NGLO. Just love the job. I, I, yeah, I was doing everything I wanted. Thank, thanks for that, Brom. And we'll, we'll pick up uh, from that point on the next podcast when we start talking about the deployment to Falklands. But as usual, we're going to finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film and luxury item. So, Brom, what have you picked for us? Well, um, <laughs> I picked uh, the book choice, The Complete History of the World. Is that a, a Rich, hefty volume? Yeah, well, it's wrote the world history. <laughs> More than, more than <laughs> 10 pages. It's by Richard Overy, published by The Times. And it's, I mean, if you read that, you know what's gone on in the past, don't you? So it literally does what it says on the tip. Oh, yeah. Covers... Probably, probably okay. praises quite a few things. Um, but, you know, I just thought it was something which you could read. And look, look at, we never learn from history, do we? No, absolutely look not. At the current situation. Yeah. You know, we've got a despot, dictator, trying to rule the world. And it's not working out too well for him either. No. 
and actually it ties in. We, we're, we're basically today's the third, and this is a, quite poignant. This is the day after the Argentinians invaded yeah. the Falklands again, and another dictator had tried to invade a country and, and failed drastically. So, film choice, Brom. You should watch this every Christmas. The Great Escape, because <laughs> I've I've seen documentaries on it, and I'd love to pick out all the faults in the film. <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many when you look at it, isn't there? But it's just it's just a good film, and you could learn the script almost, and it might come in handy if I'm stuck in a bloody <laughs> on a desert island <laughs> digging out. You need, you need a motorbike, though. No, you to dig out of there, you'd be right trouble, wouldn't you? <laughs> and uh, what's your luxury item? Well, I thought a complete lightweight solar panel set. Oh, very useful. I don't know what I could use it for, but it could be used for some bloody thing, couldn't it? Very green. <laughs> Do you, do, you, do you take a take an iPhone with you? Can you? <laughs> oh, you're only like those three things. Uh, so you yeah, but you could you it. could make that thing do things, couldn't you? Oh, you could. And no, no, you mate, you'd probably smuggle something through anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kev, what's your choice? My choice. It's a fiction, but um, it like, I like what's going on in the Ukraine. It's a Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy, and I read this towards the end of the Cold War because I think it was written in 1986. A story about the USSR at the time wanted to take over the oil fields in the Middle East. But it knew to do that, it would have to also take on NATO. It's a very technical, heavy book. It talks about weapon systems and the effects on armoured vehicles and the, the vehicles of the time, the, the Soviet vehicles and how but they were. 800 pages long, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, yeah. but it, you get into the, the, the tactics, and the tactics probably haven't changed much in Ukraine. And the vehicles describes obviously the Soviet vehicles it worked on massive numbers rather than quality and how they were getting taken out and again mirrors very much what's going on but I started reading it again since obviously um, what's going on in Ukraine and it's amazing how it stands the test of time yeah I remember reading that one as well back in the 80s because it was very sort of pertinent to what we were doing yeah, in absolutely. our role and, and, and stay behind OPs at the time yeah. my choice this week then is Brothers in Arms One Legendary Tank Regiment's Bloody War from D-Day to Victory in Europe Day by James Holland the Brits are very guilty I think of concentrating on the more glamorous regiments like the Paras and the Marines and there's a, a lot of unsung regiments out there from the Second World War that had a hard slog and didn't get the recognition and this book sort of puts that to right so the Sherwood Rangers Romney was a tank regiment that started the war as a territorial unit. It was posted to Palestine with horses and converted to artillery for a short period before becoming a tank regiment. It then fought in North Africa, El Alamein and Alam El Halfa and by the time they landed on Gold Beach on D-Day they were a tough and experienced regiment. Uh, they then covered from the French beaches all the way through to Germany and saw some of the fiercest fighting in Western Europe. They are the first British unit to cross into Germany crossed the bridges at Eindhoven and uh, also crossed the Siegfried Line when they went into Germany. But out of all the characters in the book, there's one person stood out for me, and that was the Padre, a guy called Leslie Skinner. An absolute amazing man. He basically buried and retrieved the bodies of every single soldier killed in the battalion, in the regiment, sorry. And uh, he wouldn't let MDLs do it. He did this all on his own because he didn't want the effects on morale that this would have. And as you can imagine, a tank's been brewed up. Yeah. The, the, there's uh, not a very nice thing to do. He was an amazing guy. And at the end of it, they amassed 18 battle honours since D-Day and 30 in the entire war, more than any other single unit in the British Army. And then 11 months from D-Day, they had 148 <laughs> soldiers killed in action and 299 wounded in action. And that amounted to like something like 150% of the regiment. 
That's yeah. a, a, an outstanding tale of bravery. That's it for another, another episode. And on the next podcast, Brum will be discussing Wolfrate's operations during the Falklands campaign in 1982. So thanks for coming on the pod, Brum, and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in, and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast, it would be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcasts from, especially now Spotify as we get a lot of downloads from there. Royal Mail. Finally, Royal, <laughs> and as usual, stamp. Stamps are getting stamp expensive, Kev. It's a pound for a stamp now, mate. You I need know, to but get it's worth it. <laughs> Sealed with a kiss. <laughs> and finally, thanks again to Nick Veal for his continuing support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.